Thanks for downloading this episode of Being Human, brought to you with support from the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland. This podcast brings together anthropologists from different areas of the subject in conversation about issues of public interest. There's a reading list to accompany the show, which you can find in the notes section. Please do subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with our latest conversations. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and over on our YouTube channel. Just search for Being Human in your preferred podcast player. In today's episode of Being Human, we'll be talking about what a democracy is and how it can be constructed and experienced within different cultural contexts across the world. What can anthropology add to our understanding of these political forms and practices? And how might an anthropological approach depart from the more political, economic, or even philosophical conversations that we might more typically hear through digital and print media? My name is Jennifer Cairns, and joining me today to get into some of these questions, we have Emma Crew. Emma is an anthropologist interested in the relationship between politicians and people in society. She is the director of the Global Research Network on Parliaments and People, which provides grants to scholars and artists in Myanmar and Ethiopia to study parliaments. She's also chair of the Royal Anthropological Institute's Committee on the Anthropology of Policy and Practice. We also have Bryony Rudkin, who is currently studying for a PhD at the University of Birmingham, looking at how local politicians behave in meetings. She has herself been a local councillor for the past 23 years in the town of Ipswich, where she lives. And last but not least, we also have Igor Kerstich, who is an anthropologist who has done extensive research in Libya. Igor recently joined the Thomas Coram Research Unit at University College London's Social Research Institute, and he has worked on tribalism, revolutionary politics, and the relationship between people and state in Libya. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Uh, I would like to start off by asking Igor to tell me a little bit more about how you as an anthropologist use democracy as a concept, and what does it mean to you in your anthropological research? Basically, uh, what is very interesting for me as an anthropologist is how democracy is unfinished, in a sense. So what I mean by that is that, you know, of course, there is a discourse that democracy is the best system that we have. But there are some tensions within democracy that are never resolved. And I think as an anthropologist, that's very, very interesting. And in particular, in particular, I just want to mention um, two of these tensions. I mean, the first tension is the tension that concerns representation. So democracy is supposed to be the system where we all can speak, we all can rule, have a say. Uh, but from a very practical point of view, we cannot all speak. That's why we elect politicians. Uh, we cannot all, all of us can gather somewhere and speak. So we, we rely on representation and politicians are somewhat to symbols. You know, they're supposed to symbolize us. But there is this tension between, you know, we can all speak, not all of us can speak. That tension, these two contradictory uh, positions that you find within democracy, it seems to me that is never totally resolved and is very, very interesting. Also, is interesting for me in relation to the fieldwork I've done, uh, because uh, I think that, you know, in different cultural and historical contexts, people have tried to solve this tension in different ways. Uh, in Libya, for example, where I've done research for a number of years, um, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, uh, with his revolution in 1969, is, is controlling the country. The whole point of Gaddafi's uh, socialism was the creation of popular assemblies where people could 
run the country without politicians. They, they did not do elections. They did not vote. They just met in these popular assemblies and, and basically run their country. It didn't work. Uh, and we can talk about reasons why it didn't work. But it's important to see how people try to solve that tension. People, you know, different human groups, if you like, have tried to solve that tension in different contexts. And the last point I want to make, uh, another tension which I think is very interesting uh, for me as an anthropologist, as an anthropologist who's done some work uh, on politics, is the idea that yes, you know, in democracy, we all vote, we all have a say, but we're not forced to be informed about the implications of what we decide. We can take decisions, but, you know, uh, those of us who know about the implications of what they vote for can vote, and so can those who do not know the implications of what they vote for. Um, cultured people, ignorant people, everyone can vote. And that's this, uh, you know, there is this tension which is very ancient, you know, Plato talks about it, you know. How do you solve this tension? How do you make sure the people express their will but they're informed? And this tension has never been resolved. One example for me, one clear example for me is Brexit. It seems to me that, you know, the majority of the people who voted for Brexit didn't really know the implications of their vote. Uh, but maybe it's just an impression. But yeah, these tensions within democracy are very, very interesting for me as an anthropologist. Thank you. I mean, something I think that's interesting coming out of that is, of course, if we look at different countries around the world, different countries also have different ways of enacting democracy and people in different countries have of course very different ways of participating in democracy so i believe in switzerland they have a referendum something like every week whereas we had one and it's, it's still dictating the course of a british history uh something i think about for my own field site my work is in cuba which is a participatory democracy in a sense but uh perhaps not in a way that uh, we in the UK might recognise very readily, it's not one with what we might call meaningful choices and there's often one candidate. And they had their first election in many, many decades uh, while, I was, while I was there recently. And I was quite struck by the fact that a lot of my sort of friends who were in their 20s, their way of participating in what they considered to be true democracy was to not go and vote. And so they actively, in, in, in Cuba, you're required to vote. They're, they require you to go to the ballot. And so their way of participating in what they considered to be democracy was to actually resist that, which they considered anti-democratic. So I wondered, I, mean, I don't know how much that correlates to what you've observed in Libya, but in, in your own kind of research, how did you see people participating within democracy? And was it ever at odds with what might have been understood from a more sort of top-down state understanding of? democracy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that resonates very much with um, with Libya, but, but maybe in a different way, in the sense that, you know, Gaddafi's system actually, it actually made a lot of sense. The reason why it didn't work is because at the end of the day, whatever, whatever decision was taken by the assemblies didn't count for anything. Uh, so it wasn't executed. But yeah, no, it, but what you're saying rings a bell because at some point, you know, it's, you know, as we all know, Gaddafi is no longer in power. There was a revolution in 2011, which is controversial because it was a popular revolution. But then the West got involved and, you know, for, for interest in oil and et cetera, et cetera. But one of the reasons why that happened is because people were tired of, of pretending that the system was working when in fact it wasn't. So people were trying to find ways not to take part to the popular assemblies and they saw that not non-participation as the most democratic thing to do. So in that sense, yeah, absolutely.
Thank you. Well, I would love to bring in Emma at this point, because Emma, I know that you've sort of taken as a, as a mode of professional inquiry, almost studying political institutions and politicians. I know you've done research in the Houses of Parliament, but describe to those of us that have not been inside those hallowed halls what it's like. Very exotic <laughs> and strange. Um, I think I tried to understand what the world was like from the point of view of politicians. And that is a very uneasy and uncomfortable quest um, because we're used to getting very angry with what politicians do when, particularly when they are in government and they have some kind of executive role. Um, but I did start thinking about the way that we see politicians and I contrasted it to the other group of people I used to work with who are aid workers. So people in society tend to see aid workers, uh, if particularly if they don't really know about international development, as some kind of angelic creatures who are not only aspiring to do good, but helping poor people. In contrast, they tend to loathe politicians. They see them as venal, as um, power hungry, um, as um, uh, self-serving and, and so forth. And actually, when I started really um, immersing myself within both the House of Lords and the House of Commons, I found that they're not totally dissimilar, certainly in the claims they make. So politicians are very much talk in a similar kind of way to aid workers about how they're trying to make a difference. They're trying to change things. Sometimes they go into politics in anger because they're so furious at what some regime is, is doing. Um, so I think one of the, the, the real values of um, anthropological research is that we kind of look underneath the claims that people make and we see what's happening in practice. And so you've both been talking about how politics plays out in different ways in different places, partly because of history what people do as they navigate time and space, it's very different in different contexts, but it's also very different from how it appears in public. So if you if you look at Prime Minister's Question Time, for example, people think of it as an incredibly antagonistic and an unpleasant kind of exchange. I think people tend to assume that it's it's very painful for politicians. It is for some, but it's not for others. Actually, some politicians really revel in it. It's one of the few times when you can express hostility to your opponents. It's a kind of clean kind of hostility. Um, you can summon up some sense of communitas with your own side, your own political party. Um, and, and actually, it's not nearly as difficult and as painful as the, the bitter conflicts that emerge within parties. So there's something very important about how anthropologists can um, look behind the claims and look at the the contrasts and contradictions between the way politicians are in public and private, for example. So for those of us who have not had the great pleasure of watching uh, Prime Minister's Question Time, it's broadcast to the, the British nation, and I believe every Wednesday, I think it is. And for most of us, it's a, a rather shocking display of sort of a playground childish tactics of hurling insults at one another. And it is a sight uh, to behold, actually, I think. Uh, and so it's, I'm delighted to hear that an anthropologist is actually kind of applying some academic rigor to understanding this very bizarre, I think, from most of our perspectives, 
behavior. Something that strikes me about it, though, is it's extraordinarily performative. So is that does that play out in your sort of your on the ground work in the Houses of Parliament? Is it all a big performance? It's it's certainly a series of endless, very, very different performances and different politicians revel in in different aspects of the work. So political scientists used to tend to kind of divide politicians work into different functions. So they would talk about representation, scrutiny, government, uh, etc. But actually, the, the reality is that when you're a politician, you're you're actually doing several things all at once. So you might be talking um, when a piece of legislation is being considered about a health issue that you've just been listening to constituents talking about that weekend before. So actually, these roles are not really as fixed and as separable as it as it seems. Um, and it's very, very difficult for politicians to kind of rank them. Um, and the performative nature of how they have to bounce from one seeming, seemingly different mode of being to another was really clear to me when I was I was sitting in Portcullis House. So this is the main part of the the um, Palace of Westminster, where strangers, as we used to be called, can go. This is where you can meet politicians. And I was sitting there, I was talking to the the, the most observant and normally discreet um, officials who are the clerks uh, who work in, in Parliament. And I was having a conversation with one guy and an MP walked up and he saw my pass. So because I had managed to get an official's pass, he thought I was another clerk. And he started joshing with this guy about how he was unstable. And he kept saying, oh, you've got to be careful of this guy. He's really, he's not very well. How's it going with your shrink, he said to this guy. And I was kind of laughing, but thinking, what on earth is going on here? Anyway, the clerk managed to interrupt him and said, oh, Mr. So-and-so, could you just stop a second? Because I want to introduce you. This is Dr. Emma Cruz. She's writing a book about politicians. And I have never seen anyone shapeshift so fast in my life. He stood bolt upright. He looked very formal and serious. He shook my hand. He said, very nice to meet you. I will help you in any way I can. That was deft shapeshifting. So I'm interested in also the fact you sort of mentioned the fact that we think about politicians a lot in terms of their function and we dislike them, perhaps, or they are subject to a lot of hatred. Uh, because they serve a sort of function in a, I guess, administration or a bureaucracy of, of democracy. And then yet we also see this completely other side of them play out in uh, certain newspapers which focus a lot on their personalities, on their personal lives, on the their weight or what they're wearing or who they're dating, etc, etc. Uh, and so even perhaps in the public's mind we shapeshift between these different functions they have where we do separate out their professional capability, I suppose, as we perceive it to be, and then their personal lives, which are certainly also subject to considerable scrutiny. Did you, did you find when you were going and doing research these people that they were forthcoming with you? Oh, my goodness. It sometimes turned into some kind of therapy. <laughs> this is incredibly stressful work. I mean, it's not just because you're, you're shapeshifting, but you are, you're exposed increasingly with Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, to really vile, nasty attacks. And as you say, they can be often very, very personal. Um, and I think what's what's odd about the way people write about politicians, journalists, um, and not only um, people who've, who've tended to study them, is that they either see them as individuals and they're either heroes or villains. Um, 
Uh, and normally, by the way, people tend to love their own MP uh, or their own councillor, but they, they don't like them as a group. So that's the other way they're treated. They're treated as a sort of en bloc group or people think about a system. But the reason why anthropologists, I think, have got something different to bring to the table is we are interested in relationships. So if you if you try and understand the relationships that politicians form, it then really tells you something very interesting about the work that they're doing. So I was trying to look, you know, how social scientists really obsess about history and time and and how you know time unfolds. But I got really interested also in the rhythms of work. So where do politicians go? So part of part of them being more accountable to us means, I think, that they need to tell us where are they going in their constituency? Who are they talking to? Are they visiting hospitals or schools? And and how who is whose interests are they privileging um, at any one time? So the rhythms of work are really, really revealing, as well as obviously, you know, their ideological standpoint or what I call riffs, because actually they have to kind of improvise these these ideological sometimes nuggets and sometimes long, long speeches. Um, so if you if you look at what they do day to day and who they're inter interacting with and what they say when they're interacting, that tells you something very important about the relationships that they're forming. Um, and actually, that's partly what political work is about. Well, you couldn't have set up a better introduction for our next speaker uh, if you tried. It's certainly far better than I was going to do. So Bryony Rudkin, who is both a counsellor and an anthropologist, so you have a foot in both of these worlds. And I know that you are studying how counsellors behave, but also sort of, I think you referred to yourself as an undercover anthropologist. So tell us a little bit then about what it's like doing research with these people and also being one of them. And can you sort of explain to us some of these rituals that Emma was just alluding to? Thank you. It was fascinating listen to Emma describe describe my people um and perhaps I should say uh you know I, I've come to anthropology a bit late if somebody had told me age 17 what anthropology was I wouldn't have done a politics degree um 40 years ago um and I've now come to discover that this is this is a very uh valid and important route into my research and I did describe myself as an undercover anthropologist because I'm doing an interpretive study uh, uh, you know, I'm very interested. I, I'm interested in what people say. I'm not really interested in in a lot of um, quantitative data that some of my fellow social scientists are interested. I'm interested in, in just being part of it. And, and it's quite an immersive kind of study. So I'm looking at how my fellow politicians behave. I've carried out field work, looking at uh, meetings that full, full council meetings in a particular authority, council authority in England. Um, it's been interesting because that has been partly before COVID and after COVID. So I've done it in, in a kind of different setting as well, which I'll also need to reflect on. And I've been I've been listening to people that I've listened to for a good 30, 40 years before I was a councillor. I worked, I worked in Parliament actually, Emma, um, way, way before I became a councillor myself. Um, and there's a there's a great quote I found from Charles Tilley, the anthropologist, about about um, anthropologists having to learn the language. You know, you've worked in Cuba. Um, I presume that you speak some Spanish because you might want to, you know, uh, at least, you know, order a beer. Um, I haven't got to learn the language of the people that I'm studying. I, I know the language. I understand every word they say. They may say it with different accents. Uh, but I understand it. And and the the hook for me into my research was about the, the stories that politicians told. Um, 
the narratives that they used and what Emma was saying about how Prime Minister's question time, that incredibly performative, uh, is probably the, you know, the sort of the 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 the, the most performative part of politics in the UK. And, and what I'm observing is a very much more local and uh, parochial part, but in its but it, in its own way is parochial, uh, is 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 performative as well. And I completely recognise how easy uh, it is for some politicians. Um, it doesn't phase me to make public speeches. I know that some people would be terrified about getting up in front of people they never knew. All I have to do is think of the right story. So at short notice, I could get up in front of a lot of people and I could make a political speech because I would have a story. I'd have some, I'd have a hook. I'd have some hook. I'd have got something that I could connect to them about. Uh, uh, and that's, uh, uh, that's a skill that politicians you know, deploy when they're talking to people is about that connectivity is around the stories they tell. So uh, probably as the only person on this panel that can tell me then, what uh, what does democracy in action look like? What's it actually like being in this? That's really fascinating because I think what Igor was saying about the, uh, the you know, that uh, but politicians are constantly trying to get people involved in local democracy and come to a meeting and have your say. Now, whether that's in, in, in Tripoli or whether it's in, you know, I don't know, in Ipswich, good goodness, there's a contrast. Um, it's the same, it's the same exercise that people are trying to carry out but the reality is absolutely that they they don't have quite the say. Um, I won an election once by 13 votes. And I would go into meetings and make decisions for people. And I, I, I carried that with me. I imagined these 13 people sitting outside in a minibus, kind of scrutinising, literally looking at what I was doing on their behalf. They, they thought I was better than the, than the man that I beat in the election. And I had a, I had a, a sense of responsibility towards them. Um, I think, I think performative democracy. It's, I think it's really difficult to find exactly where it's happening because it probably isn't happening where you think it is. Um, the musical Hamilton, there's a great song called The Room Where It Happens, um, for those who probably, is a, I know it has a global resonance. You know, the room where it happens is really important. You find that room and you, you find where it's happened. So, so I, I'm a woman in politics. And for years I was told, well, it all happened in smoke-filled rooms in pubs. People don't smoke anymore, but they go to pubs and they drink alcohol. So that automatically might exclude certain people, people who don't drink. And, and it used to exclude women. It didn't exclude me because I thought, well, I'll, I'll have to go to the pub. If, I, if that's where it's happening, I have to go there because I have to be in that room. And I knew that before the song, well before the song was written, I knew that that was an important place to be, the room where it happened. And I think that maybe you know the the great value that anthropology gives the 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 value of emma sitting there in those corridors in portcullis house or or whatever is to see actually where the rooms were and that could be a corridor it could be it could be uh, the, the stairs down to the tube station in, in the parliament in UK parliament's got quite a fancy tube station. And I imagine an awful lot of transactions are carried out probably at that grotty little news agents there, you know, where they might meet and buy a newspaper and just exchange a word or two. That means that they, they then go on to do something else. That would be my hunch. So I'm just thinking back to something that Igor said at the beginning of this of this podcast, and he was talking about how, in a sense, we elect people to be symbols of us, and they sort of have to go out into the beyond and act on our behalf because we can't all be there. Uh, and it strikes me from what you were just saying that the there, the being there, is also often a, a space, a physical space that we might not have access to. Uh, the likes of me cannot stroll into the Houses of Parliament, for example, and probably not even into Ipswich Town Hall easily. At least I'd like to think I'd be challenged if I tried. Do you kind of carry that with you that you're you're acting as a as a symbol on behalf? 
half of people. And then just while I, while I, while I have this, the room, I guess my second question, and this is to everyone really, it occurs to me that anthropologists often go out in search of the other. That's sort of stereotypically what we do. Uh, and in this case, the other is is potentially very close to home. And it seems to be very ironic that in this case, the other, these, I think Emma referred to them as sort of exotic politicians on the inside of this palace, uh, might be other, but they also are supposed to represent us and they are symbols of us. And that sort of strikes me as an interesting uh, subject for anthropologists. I don't know who to start with. Bryony, you have <laughs> unmuted your microphone, so I'm going to start with you. <laughs> I think that's I think that's really true. I think I think that we we do represent uh, people. We do represent people, but we are but we are perhaps different. Perhaps because our skill set is different. So, you know, not not everybody could be a doctor or a, a medical doctor or an actor or whatever. But they but they carry out that that profession. So there's a degree to which you are carrying out a quite specific profession, and you have a specific set of skills. But what you're performing is something a bit more inclusive because you're trying to be all those people who are at the public meeting or whatever, whatever, whatever the setting was. And you're trying to get access to that room. And I, and I think it's finding getting yourself into the spaces where the decisions are really made is possibly the, the skill that politicians or most politicians would say they probably wanted to be if you ask them. Emma, um, just thinking a bit more broadly then, I guess, about how anthropologists approach uh, politicians and politics and d democracy more generally, uh, I guess the same question to you really like, is, <laughs> are we studying the other or are we studying ourselves? It's a very meta question. Both, I think, <laughs> because I think we all do politics if we live or work with other people. Politics starts in the family, and it certainly takes place in every organization I've worked in. If politics is about engaging with difference, we are not clones, we are all different, we want different things, and then we get involved in struggles and often conflicts, and we walk and talk amongst foes and friends to try and get things done. And in a way, the process of that is what I how I see politics. We all do this. But what I find interesting about the position of politicians is the way I conceive of it is they do it with the dial turned up. So when my daughter used to have migraines, I would say to her, how bad is the pain? And she'd say five, six, seven, eight. Well, I think politicians are doing politics, you know, right up to 10 out of 10, whereas the rest of us are somewhere further down the dial. That does actually make it sound as if it's very different because politicians do politics on you. They want to you know, paint themselves in a certain way. We all know as anthropologists that what people say in interviews is only part of your data. What I used to do is I used to catch politicians. They were in a select committee, let's say, and they did their thing and they were, you know, performing the sifting of evidence or whatever it was. And when they came out, that's when I'd grill them. And I'd say, hey, um, that, was a, that was fascinating the way you managed to outwit that person Flattery doesn't necessarily go amiss with anyone. And then, you know, I'd start questioning them. So what? why did you do that? And what was revelatory to me was I could recognise it. It's the kind of thing that we do when we're trying to act politically. Yeah. I'm very interested also in that that idea of catching politicians in these in-between spaces when they're coming and going between not just rooms, but also presumably their functions. Uh, they're kind of stepping between being a politician and a person getting onto the Jubilee line in central London at peak time. Um, 
So, I mean, Igor, I'd like to bring it back around to you. I'd like to hear a little bit more about Libya, but I'm also, I, I guess I want to put the same question to you that I put to Emma, because I know you love your, your theory and your philosophy. I'm going to repeat that very meta question of, you know, if we're, if we're talking about finding a sort of subject of study and we're talking about looking at democracy and politicians, uh, but they're also symbols of us, as you said, we send them out there to act on our behalf. Uh, I mean, does that, does that bear out, I guess, is my question in the, in the context that you've looked at? in Libya? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the politicians are good actors, aren't they? I mean, uh, you know, everything that we've been saying so far, one of the skills that they seem to need to have is to perform in a certain way. But in that sense, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe politicians are symbols of us. They reflect certain uh, values that people have. I mean, for example, Boris Johnson is a great example because he has, for me, as a non-British person, for example, you know, I can't quite understand the success of this man. Uh, but, but, but when I try to quantify it, you know, he embodies a certain, well, quintessentially British. I mean, an anthropologist shouldn't talk like that. Nothing is quintessential, but you know what I mean. Charm, humour, way of, you know, a kind of way of saying, yeah, things are not that bad. And, you know, that. He has basically the one skill that that man has is how to talk at a party. Now, in other in other contexts, that wouldn't necessarily work. I'm thinking about Libya. Uh, you know, a Boris Johnson wouldn't have any political career in, in in Libya. Maybe not, but but you know, the kind of sort of values and performance uh, and skills that were valued uh, under Gaddafi, for example. But but even now, I mean, now is a bit of a mess, of course, but. We're completely different. But I think that is, you know, as much as they represent us, we choose politicians that seem to embody behavior or style or mannerism that seem to resonate with our culture or class. Or, and I think that's very, very interesting. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Emma sort of talked about how politicians seem to be turned up the dial to sort of 10 out of 10. And I, I look at, you know, my own site, you look at of Cuba, you look at Libya, and it seems to be true whether we're talking about sort of quote-unquote democracy or what we might kind of typify as a more populist kind of government uh, or, or a non-democratic government, perhaps, uh, this performativity, this ability to, <laughs> I suppose we might say, shout the loudest, but but within a very specific, specific idiom does seem to be common across those. And I suppose I'm trying to sort of think about the, the, what's, what are the synergies that come from, from what the three of you have all spoken about today. Uh, it strikes me that that's something that is sort of ripe for interpreting by anthropologists, because these uh, rhetorics and political discourses, the likes of parliamentary questions uh, and the sort of rituals around it, I've used several words there that are so key to anthropology. I mean, the anthropology of ritual, the anthropology of uh, gesture and the sort of little words that we use in, in different ways. They're all socioculturally derived. Uh, so I would just like to finish up by bringing Emma back in, because I know that you also do work that encourages the sort of scholarly approach to this in other countries more broadly. Uh, so I just wonder if you could just say a little bit now about the role, I suppose, of scholars in approaching democracy and, and politics more generally and, and what our contribution, I suppose, should be. I think anthropologists have a particular approach to studying politics, which which really sort of fills the gaps left by other disciplines. I think it's a combination of actually being in conversation with other disciplines. So I think anthropology in its nature has to be interdisciplinary. That's very valuable. We always pay attention to plural voices. 
So, you know, we, we try, if we do try and generalize about politicians, we immediately have to puncture it by saying, yeah, but it is very different uh, if you're uh, women rather than men, your race will make a difference in certain places, blah, blah, blah. So there's the plurality, I think, that we take account of. And also we're reflexive in the way we do research. And I think all these things mean that we've got something that something particular to offer, which actually acts as a form of scrutiny. So I would say that we even have a role within democracy to scrutinize it. And of course, we rely on the media to do that. Um, but they're under a different kind of pressure. They've got to turn around things very fast. They've got to sell newspapers. They've got all kinds of um, pressures, which we shouldn't really have um, as scholars. Um, and so I do think we've got an important role. And I think that while it can be very interesting and useful to have international exchanges because a fresh pair of eyes on things is really useful, um, you really need national capacity. We should really invest in national capacity development, including with anthropologists, to make sure that they have the opportunity, uh, and that's partly a funding issue, uh, but also we all need to support the kind of quest to show how useful anthropology is so that politicians aren't so terrified by it. They, they should be, uh, they should take it seriously, because we do tend to have a very useful critical view, um, but they should we should really try and communicate well to show how valuable it is so that we can get access. Well, thank you very much. And I think we'll have to leave it there on that call to arms, but it's a very uplifting note to end on. So I would just like to thank again my guests who have been Igor Kerstich, Emma Crew, and Bryony Rudkin. Thank you all again for joining us today. Uh, my name is Jennifer Cairns and please do join us again next time. Today's episode was recorded remotely during the pandemic, and so we apologise for any consequent reduction in the quality of sound. The episode was presented by me, Jennifer Cairns, and it was produced by me and by Laura Hapio-Kirk. The podcast series is brought to you with the support of the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland, and today's episode was edited by Antonia Gama and Diana Mitchell. To find out more about some of the topics we discussed today, please do check out the notes that accompany each episode. And please do subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest conversations. You can find us on Spotify, on iTunes, or wherever you subscribe to your favourite podcasts.